Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we come to you now in the name of thy blessed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask you, O God, would you please take the text which is before us today, open up our hearts, O Lord, minister to our souls with these beautiful descriptions of your eternal Son, And more importantly, the work that he has accomplished through providence in time, space, and history of purging us of our sins and bringing us in communion with you. We pray, O God, that you would now exalt thy Son, Jesus, above all things in our remaining times together. It is in his holy and precious name we pray unto thee. Amen. Well, every generation of those who call themselves Christians, we know have a great and a sober responsibility to uphold, to preserve, and to defend, and to preach the real Jesus of Scripture. Jude talks about this in his letter that he wrote to the church referring to the faith that was once and for all delivered unto the saints. This faith that was once and for all delivered unto the saints carries with it a very specific and unique understanding of who Jesus was, what He did, and what He is still doing. There is but only one Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ that is identified in Scripture. Now, since the advent of his earthly ministry over the centuries, we go in our church history classes at times and we see that there are many people that have figments of imagination about Jesus and other types of Jesuses. We talked about last uh, week the uh, people or society of people that identify themselves as Christians but altogether are not because they don't hold to the true biblical Jesus that is the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon, the Latter-day Saints of the church. That, that's not Jesus. That's a, that's, a, that's a figment of their imagination. And last week we sought to, in verse 3, unpack the brightness of his glory and, the, and where it talks about the express image of his person. We sought to attempt to declutter our understanding of Jesus from over 2,000 years of traditions of images of Jesus of popular culture's representation of Jesus, and try to fix our gaze upon the Scripture's witness of Jesus. Because we want to be faithful, don't we? 
and our continued witness, whether it be to those who are deceived in thinking they're Christians, like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, or those who are taking Jesus and turning him into something altogether that he's not, and they just need areas of reformation. And we did that last week, you know, as we unpacked that text. We saw how it could reinforce orthodox belief in Jesus Christ, how it could help us reform our understanding where it may be a little bit error of our thinking of Jesus Christ. And then for those who don't have any understanding whatsoever to replace misconceptions of themselves and of, de- of, of their creator with the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. We come today to another, you could say, unfolding of the biblical Jesus here. And I promise you, after now of about five weeks to six weeks here, we will get out of the prologue of the book of Hebrews. That is the first three verses. But beloved, every time I sit down to start reading or to start meditating on these first three verses, do you not see how it's like a diamond with about a thousand different faces that you can hold up and peer into and see a different reflection of? I mean, honestly, look at our text today. Verse 3 who be in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and what we're going to concentrate hopefully today on, (laughs) the latter half of verse 3, and upholding all things by the power of His Word, when He had purged, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. The, The depth, the overwhelming witness and testimony of this unfathomable Emmanuel that we talked about earlier. How could we not spend another six weeks just in the latter half of verse number three? Amen? Well, the theme today really is still continuing to point our attention of what verses one through three have always pointed our attention to. And that's what I've been describing as the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. The universal lordship of Jesus Christ. And the reason this is so important is because remember the context. There were those who were Hebrews that were converted to the faith in Christianity, who were being challenged, who were feeling outside pressures to begin to compromise the faith and begin to question their uh, holding on to the faith. And so what the, the writer of the Hebrews does, he wants to very uh, upfront, in an upfront way, exalt Jesus Christ, His Lordship over all of the angels, over all of creation as a better priest, so that these wavering Christians who seem to be on the precipice of letting go, of holding on to the faith, would be reminded of the error of their thinking and say, no, 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 no. Yes, we remember when we first believed the gospel who Jesus was. Yes, we remember his accomplishment of what he did upon the cross. Yes, we need to hold on to the faith. We need to persevere in the faith. And so verses 1 through 3 come right out like a sermon and start declaring the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, how are we going to approach uh, looking at this latter half of verse number 3? Well, I hope and I trust that you have a copy of Sermon Notes because there are at times when Sermon Notes are very, very helpful when you're looking at specific aspects of a text such as the structure of the Greek, such as the meaning of the words. And I never want any of us in the church to get bogged down or lost in the hayfields when we're working through this because when you really kind of work through it together, oh, how it just comes alive 
as you see it uh, coming uh, to the surface. I present to you that we go through the text today dealing with the work of the Son in providence and then specifically in providence, redemption. The Son's work in providence and the Son's work in redemption. Now we have here a specific work of the Son. He has not been identified by his earthly name Jesus yet, but of course we all know this is Jesus being referred to. And the work of the Son in providence is described in our verse today as upholding all things by the word of his power. And so let's consider the activity of Jesus' work, the Son's work in providence. The activity. What is it that he's doing? And what are some of the details of how he's doing it? But there's one initial consideration that we have to take note of, and you see it in your notes before we get right into that. And it's it's a noteworthy one for us. And it's the word and. That one little word and there. It's translated uh, into the English as and, not from the Greek word chi, but from the Greek word te. Now, why is that important? Well, because this indicates, as you see in your notes to us, that what Jesus, the eternal Son, does, it flows from who the eternal Son is. And therefore, this connecting little Greek particle instead of chi, being te, is telling us that the activity, or you could say the work in providence, is not a simple afterthought. Look at your text. uh, Verse number three. He's describing Jesus uh, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his persons, and upholding all things by the word of his power. It's not as if it's just a little, oh, and by the way, he upholds everything by the word of his power, like like an afterthought of just something that he does. No, what that word translated and there is communicating to us is because of innately who he is described in verses 2 and then in verses 3, exalting his divinity, exalting his role in creation. It is that which is why He is upholding all things. In other words, as the Creator, I would dare to say that He doesn't have a choice not to uphold all things. You see. It is intrinsically part of who He is having this power and this ability to uphold all things. Just an interesting little use of rhetorical devices that the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to the Hebrews to use and employ to help elevate in this original audience's mind who it is that they have come to follow and to come to dedicate their lives to. Now, having this sure footing under ourselves, just kind of glancing back at the verse, first half of the, ver- uh, the verse of His brightness glory, it's, just, it's putting this footing under the ground that this is God. Right? Let us now consider the activity of his providence. In addition to what he's already done in verse 2 of making the world. So he made, you remember, the worlds, this, this encompassed in verse 2. Not only that is that is the creative universe, 
but in your Bibles translated in verse 2, he made the world, that, that Greek word carried with it the idea of even eternity. It, just, it was so broad in its scope, nothing could escape it, right? In addition to that, we see that now we come to verse 3, and in addition to that, he's also still in providence doing this as well. Having previously said that the Son is God, the Father's agent in creation, now we see here, beloved, the inspired writer now speaks of the Son as the Father's trusted agent of all of providence. And with this shift in the verse here from the thought of absolutely being the eternal Son of God, the reflection of the brightness of His glory in the first half of the verse, with this we begin to take steps toward what will come at the end of today's verse, which is the climax of all of the purpose of providence. So there's just a little bitty shift here you can see in the text. Verse 2 is talking about these eternal aspects and this filial relationship between the Father and the eternal Son and how the eternal Son is invested with this uh, responsibility, this wonderful delegation and dignity of creating all that is. And then in verse 3 coming in, He is in fact the brightness of His glory coming forth from the Father. He is the exact, we learned last week, representation of His personhood, sharing His same essence. And there's a little shift right here. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. As we understand the all things is going to get us into providence. Meaning that which is in the created world. Which inches us closer to him coming into it. You see what the writer's doing now, don't you? He's moving us forward from his imminent Emmanuel status of God coming down and being with us. It's marvelous when you see that in the verse. Now, before we get to that part of what he did in redemption, let us fully appreciate his work in providence. Now, why is this important? Pastor Doug, why do we got to lift up the diamond and, and turn it three different ways of looking at the activity of his, his providence, how he accomplishes that, the scope of his providence? Why do we do this for this reason? Because we live in, as I said earlier, in the Old Testament reading, in a day and age where many of your countrymen, in fact, it's sad, even in the church at times, there can be people that are apathetic and they've fallen in a ditch and by God's grace He'll restore them, but they start seeing no meaning in life. They start thinking, you know, nothing's you know, orchestrated here, there's no plan, there's, there's, things are just getting worse and worse, you see. That's why we have to look at this. Because Jesus Christ, as we just mentioned before, has been appointed by the Father to bring to pass all things that the Father has decreed. What I said, I know I'm going to sound redundant today, but the whole theme is just going together. Jesus rules and reigns and is in control. This is why it's important to lift it up. So we fully get it in our head and we're these faithful witnesses generation upon generation upon a generation. You know, God is doing something right now in this generation. And Brother Aaron, it is so vital, it is so important that you and I and Brother Grace, that you and, and Maria, we do this. We lift up these gems and we remind one another. We disciple our children this generation. This is who Jesus is. Yes, things are dark. Yes, this is gloomy. Oh, but turn the gem just a little bit and you see a different aspect of who He is. His faithfulness. He's doing something. What is providence, young ones? Sounds like kind of a big theological word. What is it? 
Look in your sermon notes. It could be defined very easily as we see in our catechism from question 14 where the question asks, what are God's work of providence? The answer, God's works of providence, look closely, are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's what it is. And so we see today then in our text that the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is asserting that the Father accomplishes this most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. How? Through His appointed Son, who is the brightness of His glory. That's the real Jesus. That's the real Jesus. As we said last week, He is not our homeboy. We can get rid of the Christian church that says, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> he is the sovereign king sitting upon the throne who's ruling and reigning and bringing things, all things to pass. This, as you see in your notes, we can rightly deduce, is the active work that is being described here in the text when it says he upholds all things. Every single dust particle that drives you housewives crazy and your house that are settling on the countertops or, you know, wherever, is under Jesus' rule and reign. Every single molecule that is going through your body right now is under His domain. There is not one rogue element in this universe. Every single work that God wants to bring to pass, His preserving, the catechism said, the governing of all of His creatures and of their actions, how those actions will be used, is expressly appointed to the dominion and the task of Jesus Christ. Doesn't this give a lot more meaning to what we read in John chapter 10, verse 18, as you see in your notes? When Jesus stood before that which He created, and He had complete rule and reign over, and He said, look in your notes, no man taketh it from Me, referring to His life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Have you ever watched a big dog let a little dog kind of pick on it? And the big dog just sits there and doesn't move? Because the big dog knows, doesn't he? He's in full control of everything. We see this in, in, in wildlife with you know lions and their cubs. The cubs, you know, are, are coming into their own little identity and they're trying to fight with the big, you know, daddy lion. And he just lets the cub do what he wants to do because he knows he has the dominion right there, doesn't he, in that little clan? Friends, think about John 10, 18 again, and how Jesus, the incarnate God man, stood before those who he had complete control and providence over. And they're threatening to take his life. And he had to remind them what patience Jesus exhibited. What self-control our Lord exhibited. By way of application, beloved, when we find ourselves 
in situations as well. Let us remember who sets upon the throne, who promises never to leave us nor forsake us, who was with us unto the end. And let us be slow in our responses, right? Let us not react out of fret. And Brother Grizz, you, you drive a dump truck. And believe me, when us guys on the construction site try to get these dump truck drivers to do things they don't want to do, the dump truck drivers, they can get pretty frustrated with us. They, they you know, I'm not going to get in that rut. I'm not going to pull down there. I'm not, oh, come on, you can do it. You don't know how to drive your truck, we tell him. He's smiling because he knows what I'm saying. It's true. But in those frustrating situations out there on the job site, do we not, brother, need to remember, you know what? Jesus is in control of this. I need to be, I, I'm in control. Grizz is thinking, I'm in the truck. I'm not backing down here if I don't want to back down in here. You know, let us just be, in this feeble illustration I'm giving here, just mindful that Christ is with us. And uh, whether it be in the application of family life, work life, uh, in our own personal lives, uh, let us be not too hasty and uh, forgetting that he is the ruler and reigner of all that is. Well, still under our subheading of the activity of Christ's work and providence, we understand what that work is. It is Him upholding all things, Him having complete dominion. But we see something else in our text today, and that's something of how it's done, a little bit of a detail of how this is done. This is initially revealed to us, as you see in your sermon notes, through the word that's translated in our English translation, upholding. The text says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now this word here is uh, a unique word. It's a very uh, good, interesting word that the inspired writer chose to describe this dual upholding of Jesus of all things. It has with the two meanings you see there in your notes. One is a bearing up or sustaining of something. You get in your mind the picture of the Atlas man holding the world on his shoulder. He's bearing it up. And that's kind of what the meaning is containing there. But is he just holding it up? No, because the word also carries with it the meaning of guiding, of managing, of controlling, you see. Now, to help us kind of get the full sense of that first understanding of exactly the, the, how Jesus is doing this. Look at uh, Nehemiah 9.6 there in your sermon notes where the scriptures say that even thou art Lord alone, thou hast made heaven. In our first chapter of Hebrews, we know for verse 2, this was Jesus. Even though art, you art thou Lord, thou hast made the heavens the heaven of heavens, with all of their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preserveth them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. The preserveth them all is carrying that meaning of sustaining, of bearing up, as if, if there was one fraction of a second Naomi where Jesus wasn't truly God and who He is as the eternal Son. All of the heavens, all of the fixed stars where they're at, all of every single particle or drop of rain 
that is dedicated to a very specific dandelion, it would all come apart and unglued. That's what that preserves them all is referring to in Nehemiah. There's a New Testament witness of this idea of Jesus preserving everything, sustaining everything, holding everything together. And it comes forth, as you see in your sermon notes, from Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. It's the same meaning as Nehemiah was being inspired to prophesy about the Lord who created all things, which we know is the Logos, the Word, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, referring to the eternal Son. Listen how one, I found this in my research of preparation, how one Jewish philosopher, I don't quote Jewish philosophers very often, uh, but the early patristic church fathers were fond of quoting this one Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo of Alexandria. And listen how he described the word, the eternal word of God, holding all things together. Quote, the word of God is glue, a chain. And the word, which Don tells us in chapter 1, was the eternal son. The word, which connects together and fastens everything, is peculiarly full itself of itself, has not need whatever of anything. That's Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to establish in our minds. He is God of God, light of light. He is holding all things together. There's a reason now we're going to see why the inspired writer chose this word because it carries with its dual meaning. Because if he was just a creator who held things up by his power, it still doesn't communicate the idea that he's intrinsically and actively in his creation, right? Managing it, caring for it, guiding it, leading it, which is really where the rubber meets the road isn't it? It's one thing if Grizz were to go plant a garden and he puts a, a seed out in the garden and it starts to grow, but he never went back and tended to the garden. Right? He, he set it off, but he's not superintending it. And this is what a lot of our early uh, founders of this country believed during the middle of the 18th century. They were known as deists. They believed that God wound up a clock, created things, but now he's just letting it operate by itself. Oh no, that's not the right understanding because scripture witnesses that Jesus, who's going to use all things for the purpose of exalting his grace and his mercy at the cross, is superintending it for the purpose that we're going to see at the end of the verse today. And that comes through in the second meaning of the word you see there, guiding and managing it. I think that that can come through if we look at two texts. This idea of Jesus having complete dominion and also not only being the creator of it and the one who holds it all together by his power, but also that he is himself guiding and he is leading it. 
Look, beloved, at Psalms 103 in your sermon notes, verses 19 through 21. What a beautiful Old Testament witness of this guiding, this ruling that the Lord Jesus Christ has over all that exists. The Lord hath prepared His thrones, the Word of God says, in the heavens. And His kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord. Yea, His angels that excel in strength, that do His commandments, hearkening unto the voice of His word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye hosts, ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Look there at the part where the angels who do His commandments. Think just for a moment of your knowledge of Scripture, of how many times the angels were involved in creation, in providence, doing much more than just holding it together. Remember what they were doing? They were leading, they were guiding, they were defending. How many of you remember the story in the Bible where the encampment, the encampment of the army was against Elijah. And Elijah was fearful, wasn't he? And Elijah told him, look upon the precipice of the cliff, look upon the hill, what do you see? And he looked up and he saw an army of angels there to defend. In our text today, chapter 1, verse 14, we'll get to it eventually, I promise. It it describes how there are ministering angels watching over the very elect and saints of God. All of these are agents under Christ to do His work in providence. What an intimate reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't some far off distant creator not concerned or involved in our everyday lives. There's a beautiful, I think, probably more homely or earthly example we see in the New Testament of this aspect of Jesus' upholding all things. You see it in your notes there from Matthew 10, 29-31. And I pray that any troubling soul who's here today or who would ever hear this understands that Jesus does see you. Jesus does understand your trials. He does understand what it is that perhaps you're going through in your life right now. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 29-31 in your sermon notes. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not therefore. You're hearing echoes of Isaiah we read this morning now, aren't you? Fear ye not therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. Now there's a lot of principles that are embedded in that text, I know, but what I'm wanting to just lift up is that Jesus Christ, who does by His very essence hold everything together, He also cares about what's going on in His creation as well. Going back to Philo of Alexandria, once more referring to this intimate care and involvement of the eternal Son, he says, this power steers the whole common vessel of the world in which all things sail as a ship. And He bridles the course of the winged chariot, the entire heaven, exerting an independent and absolute sovereign authority. That's King Jesus ruling in His creation. This unique 
and resourceful word that we just kind of considered was no doubt divinely chosen to convey the powerful imagery of what we read regarding the Messiah by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where we read that the government will be upon his shoulder, the Messiah's shoulder, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it. You hear the control? To establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And thus we understand, and indeed, don't we, beloved, stand in awe at the fact that at what the providence was, we just looked at, it is accomplished by nothing less than the active, royal, kingly exercise of Jesus' divine authority in all of creation during all ages, and especially in these last days in which you and I live. Or as Dr. Robert Paul Martin says, this twin work of sustaining and directing, it encompasses the Son's work of providence. In our attempt of giving full consideration to our current heading regarding the Son's work in providence, there's an additional aspect which is brought to our attention in the text now, and that is the scope of His providence. You see here where it references all things. The reference here to all things is, of course, intended to reinforce the lordship by which Jesus the Son innately exercises over that in verse 2 that it said He created. The same Greek word is used here also in John 1.3 that's translated all things. And I think when we look at that, it helps us to kind of connect His creative role in verse 2 of our chapter 1 today in Hebrews and his intimately being involved over absolutely everything that is in creation and that exists to help us fully appreciate exactly this dignity that Jesus Christ possesses. John 1.3, you have it in your notes, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Absolutely everything. Jesus Christ is Lord over having fully thought through the meaning of the Son's activity and providence, now we come in our text we learn about by whose ability, by whose power does these works of the Son in providence come about? How does the Son exercise His providential rule over that which He has created? Is it by the ability of His eternal Father? and a power that the Father gives Him? Or is it by His own innate power and ability which resides in Himself as He shares in the Father's divine essence and the Father's nature? Well, there are some theologians who teach that the word translated here in the English as His, look at at your Bibles, He upholds all things, look at that, what does that mean? How does he, what are some parts of how he does it? By the word of his power. Some teach that this could rightfully refer to either the son's power or the father's power, but it really doesn't matter because it doesn't jeopardize our interpretation. It doesn't change it. It could work either way. 
However, there are others who I would strongly agree with that make a very important note about why this is referring to Jesus' own power. And you see it in your notes. They draw to our attention that the original Hebrew Christians that read this, they did not need to be told that Elohim, God Almighty, upheld all things. But rather what they needed to have was a more exalted conception of the divine dignity, authority, and almighty power of Christ. That is indeed the case, isn't it? I mean, think about it, beloved. The original audience. The original audience, the men particularly, went to Hebrew school since from, the, from birth all the way up to age 15. As soon as they could read, they went all the way up to age 15, memorizing the Torah. And what's the very first verse of the Torah? God created the heavens and the earth. They didn't need to be reminded, did they? But they did need to be reminded of the gospel message that they would have originally heard. That God came in the flesh and Elohim was Jesus. And that he, remembering his dignity and his power, he is the one who created all things. So I think that that's a much more reliable interpretation and understanding of exactly whose power was harnessed in order to do this active work of providence in creation. It's Jesus' own power, Nolan, because Jesus is God. Now there's an interesting part here about in the translation, and I believe most of the translations, I think the authorized version, I wouldn't change it, I like it. It says, um, upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay, the word of his power. You have it in your sermon notes. This Greek word that's translated word, it really carries with it the idea of a powerful, a living voice. So all of these things, this activity of providence, both sustaining, guiding, it is by and emanates from the power and the ability of Jesus as the eternal Son Himself. He doesn't have to borrow a little power from the Father. He doesn't have to borrow a little power from the Spirit. While they work in harmony, let me be clear, the text is wanting to exalt in our minds that Jesus possesses within Himself as God completely all of the power. And He does it by His Word. By His Word. And I believe what is most interesting in this portion of unpacking Jesus' ability and power is that this term, as you see in your notes, it denotes that which is uttered by Jesus. Words that are uttered by Jesus. And I say this is interesting and also very uh, revealing due to the fact that in the Old Testament we know That what is affirmed about God's hand, for example, in Isaiah 66, 1, is also affirmed about God's voice in Psalms 33. In other words, in the Old Testament, God's voice and God's hand were seen as pictures or instruments of His activity of bringing about His will. They were the instruments in which He exercised His royal authority and power in all of creation. And so, with that kind of understanding about the importance of a voice and the connection with God's stretching forth His arm through His voice to bring about His decrees and about His will upon earth, 
Look in your notes. We understand it's also then true of the Son. Jesus sustains and rules all things which He has created by the very powerful word or utterance that He gives. And let us be clear, this is not an exhaustive effort on the part of Jesus who sustains this universal nature and control over all that exists as Creator and Lord because He possesses in Himself a power before which everything must bow, everything must kneel, and by the simple utterance of His Word, things are brought to pass. This thought of Christ's effortless control and dominion through His own Word of power is what makes the next part of our text so truly shocking. Think about this. Look at it. In verse 3, He upholds all things by the word of His power when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Through the word of His power, bringing all that is supposed to come to pass, to pass, inching forward everything that is supposed to move forward to arrive to its accomplished purpose. He, think about this, purposes within Himself to utilize all this control of that which He created to do one thing, but one truly remarkable thing. That is, in complete obedience to the eternal covenant that He and His eternal Father made through His divine providence to bring all redemptive history, all providence to this point where He would purge people who needed cleansing from their sins. Wow. All of what we just sat here and labored to establish and Jesus wearing this crown of rule, holding this scepter of dominion brings us to the point that He has all of that and utilized all of that for this one thing, to purge us from sin. Now we move to consider the Son's work in redemption. Having considered the what of His work in providence, the somewhat of the how in His works of providence, very briefly the scope and, and, the, and by whose ability and power, we are now granted one of the most greatest revelations from God to all of mankind, which is that Jesus, our Creator, our Sustainer, And our sovereign ruler took upon himself human flesh to procure the purpose of all of creation, the accomplishment of his high priestly work of purging our sins. Here the inspired writer notices very tactfully entering into somewhat of a comparison of Jesus as a high priest in contrast to those of the old covenant priests. The original audience, when they would have heard this and heard purging of sin, would have immediately thought about the high priestly work under the Old Covenant administration. Uh, They would have immediately made that connection. And the writer of Hebrews, he's going to continue to build upon this later on. He's going to develop it much later on, more thoroughly. But as you see in your notes, in all previous observations of the Son's priestly work of upholding all things by the word of His power, and it's properly understood as continuing and ongoing. This is something that he continues to do in his providence. Here, however, the implication of the Greek word translated 
had by himself made, or as some of the modern translations have it, when he had made, it is purposefully, pay attention, communicating that this particular priestly task of making purification for sin had been successfully accomplished in the past tense and was not an ongoing open-ended work nor one that needed to be re-performed in the future. So as they're in their minds making this contrast and this comparison with the old covenant priests, which year by year had to go and make sacrifice for sin, the inspired writer of the message of Hebrews here is purposefully employing in the Greek a term that said, he purged sin once and for all. Once and for all. There's not a coming back again to having put upon the cross again. Uh, there, there's, there's not a, a needing to, in the future somehow, um, there's one society of people who call themselves Christians that believe in a holding chamber after someone died. It's called purgatory where people can still have you know, sins forgiven and things done in this life in order to forgive sins. No, no, no. That, it, that, that's not the case. Once and for all, the writer is teaching about the eternal Son who controls all things was to bring it to the point where He could come in time, space, and history and purge sin as a high priest, the imminent the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, to imminently do it once and for all upon the cross. That's the thunderbolt that's being shot out from the last part of this verse. The Son's high priestly work here is described as having made purification of sin. And the word in the Greek that is translated purge or sometimes purification, and other times cleansing, It indicates clearly that which is something that's unclean and unfit to be in the presence of God. Well, who is it that's unfit to be in the presence of God? It is those who have the stins, stins, the sins (laughs) that stain their garments. This idea of filthiness this idea of needing cleansed to come into God's presence, doesn't it come through in the Old Testament where we read many times of how the lepers who were described as filthy and needed cleansing before they could come into the temple or uh, in those Algarian ages and lifestyles, the, 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 the women who were going through you know, their natural cycles could not even come because they were considered unclean. They had to go through a long ritualistic process. This is the imagery that's being brought forth here in this text that, that Jesus came to purge people who were unclean. And this brings to the surface, doesn't it? The very thing that many a modern man doesn't like to admit about himself? That he is a sinner? That he is unclean? That he has transgressed a thrice holy law of God that's brought himself in a position to where he is alienated from God? This is the truth of every natural man, isn't it? Well, We could ask and ponder on, how many sins do I have to commit in order to be considered filthy or be considered unclean? 
that Jesus would need to purge me or that I would even need purging. Sadly, many people come into the church today thinking that they're pretty good people. They'll help the neighbor next door, you know, um, build a fence, the widow down the street, and those things are all good. Those are fine. We ought to do that. And they think on that degree, on the, the, the scales of justice, that they are okay people, right? That they, that they really don't need purging. I mean, yeah, I got a little reforming I need to do. But to use language that I need to be cleansed or that I need to be purified, I think that's a little bit, going a little bit overboard. But the witness of Scripture is that one sin in the very presence of a thrice holy God cannot even be tolerated. He can't even look upon it. Just one sin, the Apostle James says, makes us guilty of all of it. And so everyone in this room today, not one of us can say honestly with a clear conscience that we have not committed a sin or one sin or multiple sins. And some of us would be embarrassed to raise our hand of committing the most sins in the room. Right? But with that held up in front of us, the just condemnation of our own sins, we come to the point in the text where we see that God in the eternal Son, who owed us nothing, wasn't a debt He had to give back, wasn't that He needed something outside of Himself, that's what the Philo of Alexander was pointing out, how He upholds all things, it's within His own power, He wasn't in need of anything. He left all of that. He orchestrated everything to come and to make a ransom to purge you, to cleanse you from that sin. That's who Jesus is. Naomi. Left all of the glories above to come and to die for your sins. Think about that for a moment. And it was paid. That's what the Greek tense was stressing. That's why one of the labor pointed out. It was accomplished. It was done. It was finished. This is exactly what many of the prophets declared that the Messiah would do. Look in your notes from the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 3. He shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify. Purify there, uh, it's Hebrew, but it's it's a derivative in a way of the word that we're looking at today of being purged. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This is a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of when Jesus purges from sin once and for all, it prepares us, it fits us to begin to live differently, to think differently, right? And this is exactly what we see in, the, in those who have been changed by Jesus. They do think differently. <laughs> and they, they, they begin to mature differently and they begin to, to think differently and, 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 and act differently and talk differently. 
unto the Lord, bringing him an offering of righteousness. This purification, this purging of our sins, therefore, it's the removal of sins which are a barrier impeding movement toward communion with God. It's not until the sovereign Spirit of God does that heart surgery upon us, showing us this work that Jesus has accomplished for us, can we really rightly have communion with God. Until the sovereign work of the Spirit makes the reality of what the author here is saying personal to us, there always seems to be a distance between us and God. It is the putting away of sins. Figuratively as being accomplished by the blood of a sacrifice. There's no mention of the blood here in the text. But no doubt, as I was saying earlier, the original audience, when he would have made this contrast or this comparison of a high priestly work, they knew it involved blood. Every year there had to be an animal sacrificed. And I know that it may be somewhat taxing upon you at this point of the message. However, it is important that I point out to you that the Greek phrase, when he had, or in other translations, having made, it acts in the Greek as an intensive, an intensive participle. I know that sounds all fancy, but it simply means this. It lays in the language the strongest stress that that language could possibly offer. We use exclamation points. We use italicized words. Okay, that's kind of what's going on. It is purposefully being employed to lay the most stresses possible that the agent, the son, is producing the action to accomplish the, pur- the purpose. That's why in the English translation it says, by himself. By himself. Look in your notes. This is also pointed out in the same phrase. This, the same Greek tense is amplified later on in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once in the holy place, having obtained, he, Jesus, having obtained eternal redemption for sins. Knowing that all of this was in the mind of the Creator and Eternal Son as to the main purpose of His divine providence, it is no surprise that we read from the prophet of Isaiah that this was the labor of His soul. This was the travail of His soul. By Himself, He bore the iniquities of us all who believe upon Him. By Himself. Come afresh this morning, beloved, to this gospel realization of what Jesus did for you upon the cross of Christ. After this, of course, the text finishes with him accomplishing this high priestly work to be risen again to set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, Something that's unique about this, of this rightful position where he now resides. This is where Jesus is located, ruling and reigning in all the descriptions we just said. It is not, in a sense, a 
logistical, geographical, fixed place. You're looking up here right now and, and to uh, my right here. I had to think about that. To my right, it's not as if it's like that. It's, it's not like Jesus is sitting to the right of the Father. It's not like there's three thrones up there. That's, that's, that's not the right interpretation here. But, but how many times we always think like that, don't we? That the sun's setting literally to the right hand? No. The more you dive into this, the more you see that Jesus is on the throne with the Father. To say that He is at the right hand isn't to be taken literally that He's right there. It is the highest way to denote the dignity that He possesses as the heir of the Father and sharing as God the rightful place of having dominion over all of this on the throne. He, the Father, the Spirit are one. They sit on one throne and through the Son all things are governed. All things are ruled. And by the sending forth of the Spirit, as the ancient Nicene Church Creed says, emanating forth from the Father and the Son accomplishes the work that the Son and the Father have decreed will take place. And they are on the throne. This is our exalted Jesus Christ. Well, how do you apply all of that at the end of a message of, emanate, of, of looking at the eminence of Jesus Christ and His loftiness. I think, beloved, what it ought to do is just make us more zealous for our love for Him. Amen. It, uh, going back to the Scripture readings earlier, it ought to make us even more trusting in His rule and His reign, despite what may be going on in the circumstances around us. And if anything, if anything at all, It ought to burn within us a great zeal and a fire to tell others who are in the blindness and the hardness of their sins that Jesus came to do a sacrificial work to cleanse men of sin. That's Jesus. Not to be your best friend. Not to be your homeboy. But to be your Savior. To be your Savior. Friend, come to Christ. There is a fount that is flowing from His cross, amen, that purges your sins. This is why He rules and reigns to bring me into your presence to speak with you today about the way of escape from the condemnation of, the, of your conscience of what it's plaguing upon you. We're going to see as we go forward in this text of the Hebrews, He points them back again and again to this final redemptive work of Jesus who are wrestling at their own convictions Uh, who's wrestling with their own assurance, who's wrestling with their own condemnation that their sins, which they still commit at times, plagues them with. And it's a beautiful, beautiful text to come to to show the universal lordship of Jesus Christ and how He exercised all of that control and dominion for the one purpose of purging man of his sins. I think that's the best way we can walk away today in these first three verses of the book of Hebrews. Let's say a word of prayer. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are truly humbled by what we have looked at today together in your blessed word. We are quieted in spirit at the very thought of the immaculate, powerful, eternal Son, the Lord Jesus, leaving all of His power, glory above, and condescending, coming down in a humble way 
for the purpose of purging us for our sins, cleansing us from our sins, so that we through Him could be accepted by You, Almighty God. We are humbled. Our our pride, no doubt, is crushed at this revelation. But also, as we remain as crushed, prideful men, we see also Your love. We also see a glimpse of Your mercy in the face of the Son who did all of this for the lost sheep. O Christ, as we are preparing to come and remember Your work upon the cross by observing Your ordained supper, help us, Lord. Help us to have these thoughts in the back of our minds of what You have done. We only are here today and only confess love for Thee because You, from eternity past, we've seen in our text today, first loved us. O Christ, You are our all and all. Forgive us. Oh, please forgive us for our many sins and shortcomings. And be faithful to us as You promised You would. Keep us, preserve us, Help us to continue to be faithful in witnessing your grace, your mercy. Oh, and as we've learned today, all of your glory, not one ounce of it to be forfeited. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. May you receive all of our praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.